I'm Ainsley Earhart. I'm Brett Baer. I'm Katie Pavlich, and this is the Fox News Rundown. Monday, April 13th, 2020. I'm Trey Yingst. The Chinese government is reportedly blocking certain coronavirus research from being published as an information battle about the outbreak rages on. So, you know, it's been a full spectrum, you know, ideological and, and, um, and diplomatic and propaganda campaign to essentially prevent people from recognizing the truth. This is the Fox News Rundown, global pandemic. Officials in both China and the United States are making accusations of misinformation regarding the origins and spread of COVID-19. This, as reports indicate, the Chinese government is limiting the ability to publish research conducted about the coronavirus. Over the next few minutes, you'll get the latest headlines on the global COVID-19 outbreak and hear from retired General Robert Spalding about China's efforts to compromise American national security interests. Starting first, though, in Europe, where the country of Spain lifted some lockdown restrictions today, as the number of new coronavirus cases has plummeted. Spanish officials are stressing that the easing of rules is focused on factories and construction sites. The purpose is to work on restarting the economy, not for life to return to normal right away. Italy is following suit, reopening bookstores and children's clothing stores, but keeping the doors to factories closed. Italian authorities will keep the current countrywide lockdown in place until at least May 3rd. With a rapid decline in new cases, hospitalizations, and deaths across many parts of Europe, authorities are cautiously optimistic. There is concern that reopening for business too soon could lead to a second wave of cases. This is the case in one part of Japan that has seen a rapid increase in positive test results over recent days. The Japanese region has since redeclared a state of emergency after the previous one was lifted in mid-March. In China, life has returned to normal in most areas, though a second wave is a major concern for authorities there. 108 new cases were reported on Sunday, the highest in five weeks. The majority of cases are from people arriving back in China from abroad. So as China fights off a possible second wave of COVID-19, what is the country doing to fight off new allegations that it knew how bad coronavirus was, but lied about it? Well, I think uh, if you look at the timeline, uh, they knew um, actually back in December that they had um, probable human-to-human transmission. This is retired General Robert Spalding. He is a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute and closely studies the U.S.-China relationship. And of course, um, you know, they hid that. In fact, um, there were some tissue samples where uh, they actually sequenced the, the virus and those samples were destroyed. All evidence of, of sequencing had, was destroyed. Of course, they also uh, told the WHO um, that they uh, didn't have evidence of human-to-human transmission. And um, in the meantime, uh, in addition to essentially obfuscating all of that, they knew also that there was going to be travel because of the New Year's um, um, celebrations in in mid-January. And so uh, about 20 between 22, 23 January, uh, when Wuhan went into lockdown, uh, the mayor at that time said that already 5 million people had traveled out of Wuhan. So um, I think the, the most egregious thing is the fact that they knew that there was human to human transmission, uh, obfuscated that, you know, basically didn't tell the WHO and then let all of those people travel outside of the city. You're the author of a book titled Stealth War, How China Took Over While America's Elite Slept. 
what are the national security implications of the Chinese basically hiding information that they had from the WHO and then the moving forward security implications about the actions that they've taken to try to slow the spread of this virus? Well, I think uh, it's clear that this has uh, been de- devastated to our devastating to our economy. We've already uh, had 17 million people apply for unemployment. That was, um, you know, coming on the back of an economy that had uh, less than 3.5 percent unemployment, which was is historical historical lows. Um, you know, in terms of national security, economic security is foremost when you think of national security. The other thing that you think of when you think of national security is really the preservation of your social and cultural system. And I think both of those, you know, both the prosperity and the um, the tendency to support and, and believe in democratic uh, democracies is really being, um, you know, the best system for taking care of people's. Uh, have come under uh, challenge because of what has happened with regard to this global pandemic. And, and of course, the Chinese Communist Party has helped incentivize that, that, that belief because it, uh, it acted very quickly. Uh, again, when it wasn't telling everybody about human-to-human transmission, it was directing uh, the hoarding of uh, PPE and masks and, and all of the things that frontline um, you know, first responders would need to deal with this crisis. At the same time, they began to um, prevent the shipment of those items from their factories in China to the rest of the world, uh, while also um, out there talking about the fact that this was not, um, it did not originate in China. It actually originated uh, from U.S. Army personnel that had uh, been in Wuhan for military games. So, you know, it's been a it's a been a full spectrum, you know, ideological and and um, and diplomatic and propaganda campaign to essentially uh, not only uh, prevent people from recognizing the truth or understanding the truth, but also to guide them to, hey, China and the in the system, the, the totalitarian system of the Chinese Communist Party led regime is much better in terms of outcomes for people than democracies are. So you've served as a China strategist to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. You've seen the way the U.S.-China relationship has evolved over the past few decades. We know the United States relies a lot on China for the importing of goods, oftentimes medical equipment and even medicine. What position does that put America in when they are looking to China for these types of items amid a global pandemic? Well, it's terribly um, damaging for your society because as we've seen, um, even, um, you know, there's been sort of a truce called between the U.S. and China in terms of the war of words in order to get PPE out of China to American front frontline responders. That being said, you know, even as the aircraft sit there on the ground in China, uh, they have endless delays for paperwork and inspections that um, are essentially, uh, you know, added complications to moving that that equipment and supplies outside of China. So, you know, this is this is, uh, you know, if you think about it, having all of your antibiotics come from a regime that does um, has concentration camps 
does forced organ harvesting, essentially represses its uh, entire uh, society, then you're you're really taking into um, you're really creating a risk for your society uh, when you're so dependent on uh, the items for health and welfare. You know, I started uh, this looking at this in terms of the defense industrial base. What are those things that the the military needs to operate? What are the components that we need for our weapon systems? You know, unfortunately, I didn't uh, I didn't talk about this in extreme dependence on medical supplies in my in my book. But, you know, really now clearly that's a, that was a blind spot even of mine. You've been listening to retired General Robert Spalding. We'll be right back. Are you hopeful that you'll see any behavior changes by the regime just as a result of their economy suffering from the coronavirus outbreak and the substantial impacts that COVID-19 had on their country? No, I actually think that they're going to get more repressive going forward. Uh, I think clearly Americans now see the problem with uh, being tied to such a totalitarian regime and the need to really extricate ourselves from a lot of those ties and the need, the importance of uh, reshoring a lot of manufacturing. You know, I think the other thing that you that you um, that we realized was that not only did we offshore manufacturing, but we offshored it in a way that, you know, uh, meant that labor was exploited and, and, and the environment was harmed. And so, you know, in reshoring manufacturing in the United States, I think we're going to go a long way towards actually getting to where the Paris Climate Accords wanted to be, which is in a reduction of CO2. Now, when you have coal-fired plants in China, and they're still building them, by the way, that are driving you know, the, the world's manufacturing, then you're actually still polluting the planet. But if we can, I think, offshore a lot of that manufacturing, and not only America's thinking of this, also Japan and other countries are, I think it'll go a long ways to you know, both reducing um, exploited labor in the world and improving the environment. So I think you know, U.S. is, Americans have finally, you know, in a lot of ways, woken up to what was going on. And finally, what is the solution in your mind? We often talk about repressive regimes across the world and politicians and top military officials will put forth ideas. Sometimes it's regime change. Sometimes it is a sanctions campaign that will discourage provocative behavior. When it comes to China, what is a solution to their activity that we've seen over the past decade and the increasing amount of disinformation that is coming out surrounding this pandemic and others? Yeah, so I think real in the in the realization that first of all, the United States cannot be an island unto itself. It needs um, it needs the strength of allies to help it. But in the way that those allies interact with the U.S., they have to interact in in international institutions in a way that actually promotes our principles: free trade, democratic principles, rule of law, civil liberties, human rights. You know, self-determination, all of these things that were outlined in the Atlantic Charter are important. And to really get the UN and the WTO and the WHO to begin to uh, act according to these principles, democracies have to come together and enforce the rules. And international institutions cannot by themselves enforce rules. What has to happen is that uh, sovereign nations working together have to you know, essentially punish those that refuse to obey, uh, abide by the rules. Now, 
you know, we we tended to think at the end of the Cold War that, you know, our alliances were really military alliances. That's not sufficient. They have to be economic alliances. They have to be financial alliances. They have to be trade alliances, and they have to be ideological alliances. And they we have to work together in concert to promote the principles and values of the liberal democratic order if we want to essentially see it uh, continue. Senior fellow at the Hudson Institute, retired Brigadier General Robert Spalding, thank you again for your time, General. Thank you. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.